Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. My guest today is Emily Brown. Emily has worked for public lands management agencies on conservation, restoration, and wildfire mitigation and suppression activities. This past summer, Emily worked in Alaska for the National Park Service, where part of her time was spent on fuels reduction, which is like thinning the forest, creating defensible space, and doing a lot of other activities that we're going to ask her to describe in more detail in a moment. And part of her time was actually spent fighting fires. So as many of our listeners probably know, um, wildfires are increasing in frequency and severity in the United States. Eight of the 10 most damaging fires on record have occurred since 2017. And this past summer, all of you listeners on the East Coast know that we had several days with severe air pollution from wildfires that were thousands of miles away in Canada. So the impacts of fires are really being felt all over the place. And uh, one more piece of backdrop I wanted to mention before we start is that we just had a big report that was released um, on September 28th from the Wildland Fire Mitigation and Management Commission, which was created by Congress about a year ago. And that report includes a bunch of recommendations about how we should be addressing the wildfire challenge and increased attention to these fuel treatment activities we're going to talk about um, with Emily at figure prominently in that report. And also, so do a lot of issues related to the wildfire workforce. And since Emily was part of that workforce, I'm really looking forward to talking to her about some of the things in that report related to the workforce and her own on-the-ground experiences. Stay with us. So hello, Emily. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Margaret. So before we dive into our conversation, we like to learn about our guests a little bit. So um, full disclosure, I've known Emily since she was a little girl, (laughs) age eight, I think. So I want to know a little bit about what took you from suburban DC out to the wilds of Alaska fighting fires. So I grew up here in McLean, Virginia, which is pretty close to Washington, D.C., and all of the hustle and bustle there. But it's also a lot near a lot of beautiful natural areas. Uh, As a kid, I grew up in a pretty forested neighborhood and was always in awe of the natural areas there. Um, I got my degree in botany from Miami University, the one in Ohio, not Florida. Um, with the goal of working in federally protected lands, but not really sure in what capacity. Uh, Immediately after college, I worked at my local florist, but after about a year, I realized that wasn't really what I wanted my career to be. So I started looking for ways to get involved in conservation and resource management, and I found the American Conservation Experience, which is an AmeriCorps program, and moved out to their Sacramento location in the summer of 2022. My first project there was uh, invasive species management of marsh grasses in Humboldt, California. And then I got to learn about trail building and maintenance in Lake Tahoe, El Dorado National Forest, and a couple other places. Um, But the thing that was really exciting was in January of this year, I was part of the chainsaw crew there doing fuels reduction near San Luis Obispo. Um, That area has tons of eucalyptus trees, which are invasive transplants from Australia and New Zealand that were brought over in the late 1800s, but were abandoned because they didn't grow quite as well for lumber here. Um, I had the opportunity to learn how to use a chainsaw, and once I got over that initial anxiety, 
I realized I was really fascinated by all the techniques required to fell a tree, all of the physics and science behind it. And honestly, the machine itself is pretty cool. So when my crew leader there, Mindy, told us she was leaving to lead an all-female chainsaw crew in Alaska who were also going to fight fire, uh, I thought that was basically the coolest thing I'd ever heard of and knew I had to join her. She managed to actually steal three of us from that program in California to join her. Uh, and there we went through classroom instruction and training specifically for fire with an all-female cadre of instructors who were just incredible. For most of the season, we did fuels reduction projects in uh, the national parks up there. But at the end of July, we were finally called on a fire assignment. So we went up to Fairbanks, got gear and briefings. And then a couple days later, we were flying in helicopters and planes and fighting fire on the ground, which was exhilarating and rewarding and definitely one of the most challenging things I've ever done. But I loved it. So now I'm looking for more ways to continue that career. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. So you got hooked on a chainsaw, but they don't just let anybody go off in the wilderness and handle a chainsaw. Tell us about the training you had to go through, Emily, to, to start doing this work. Yeah. So technically anyone can go and buy a chainsaw from Home <laughs> Depot. <true. laughs> no training required, which scares me a little because they're pretty powerful machines. But no, for professional use, you do have to do a bit of training. Um, when I was in California and did my first training there, um, we had a day of classroom instruction where we learned about the saw itself, the engine, safety features, maintenance, how to troubleshoot problems, talked about the techniques for felling a tree um, and all of that. Um, there's actually a lot of hazard assessment and mitigation that happens before you even start cutting the tree. You almost have to think of all the things that could possibly go wrong as the tree falls and kind of prepare or plan for those. You also have to have a decent understanding of physics, believe it or not, um, when you're trying to judge the binding forces within the wood, like tension and compression and how that affects your cuts. Um, and after that classroom portion, we had a couple days of field instruction and supervision before we were able to start working on our own. In Alaska, it was a little different since we were going to be using saws in the context of fire and we were working with the National Park Service. So we took I think six different classes on fire behavior, reading weather patterns, firefighting techniques, incident command systems, and of course, chainsaws. So that was a lot of information all at once, but it was really cool and interesting stuff. And even though we weren't really tested on the material, I spent a lot of time going over my notes after class ended each day because it was just fascinating to me. And you had some physical requirements, Emily. What yeah. You have to be strong to go do this. What, tell us about those. The other major difference in Alaska was we had to take what they call the pack test, where you walk three miles in 45 minutes with 45 pounds on your back. It's essentially a cardiac stress test to simulate what it would be like if you had to evacuate with all of your gear in case of an emergency. Um, and everyone on our crew passed, which was amazing. Um, we were doing PT every morning to prepare for that kept up with that through the rest of the season to stay in shape for fire assignment. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so speaking of that, let's take that one step further. I, I'm assuming there's not a lot of women that are doing these kinds of jobs, but you were on an all female crew. Um, so tell us about how that came about, if you know, and, and what was that experience like? You're right. Fire is still a pretty male dominated industry. 
On our first day of training, the fire management officer for the Eastern area, Jason Devich, gave us a speech where I think he said the word atrocious no less than 10 times in reference to the gender disparity that exists in fire in the Park Service. Um, he shared the strategic plan they have for 2022 to 24 with me, which has a section that talks about how they're trying to improve that disparity. And it's really cool to see. Um, according to the National Fire Protection Agency, as of 2020, only 12% of federal wildland firefighters are women. And um, according to that strategic plan, 5% of park leadership roles like fire management officers are women. And that decreases as you go up to the regional or the national level. So I fully agree with Jason. That is pretty atrocious, but it was empowering to be part of a program. That's how we're changing that. Um, and this summer, I was technically working for the Student Conservation Association, and they put together the all-female fire program with the support of the National Park Service, um, which I think this was just the second year they've done this. It was modeled after the success of a similar program in Montana and Wyoming. Uh, we had two crews. Each one had one leader and four members, but the 10 of us all traveled and worked together for the summer. Um, each project, we'd switch up what pairs we were in, so we all got to work together, learn from each other, um, which was a really great system because the program required the leaders to have previous chainsaw experience, but not necessarily for the members. So five of the women on the crew had never held chainsaws before. So it was fun to kind of get to learn together and see everyone improve. Um, and I felt like for most of the summer, we were in our own little bubble where I never thought about us being an all-female crew. We were just a group of people learning and working together and having fun. That bubble kind of popped when we went on our fire assignment and worked with professional crews who would have maybe one to three, if any, women on a 20-person crew. So we got a lot of stares and at some point felt like people didn't really expect much from us just that it was nice or cute that we were trying. Oh, yeah. But most of the operations leadership on our fires were people we'd worked with earlier in the summer. So they were all really supportive, which mm -hmm. was great. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So I mentioned that you did this fuels treatment work um, and you spent the first part of the summer, I think, doing that. So that's kind of pre-fire work that's designed to reduce the risk of a fire happening. Um, so tell us what that work looks like. You know, um, some of us work in the policy area and we talk about it, but like, just give us the experience. What exactly were you doing? Yeah, our first project was in the summer. We were working in Wrangell St. Elias National Park uh, near a town there called McCarthy to retreat a fire break out there that had been established a couple years before. So that fire break is just an area with no or limited vegetation that helps stop the spread of a fire. Um, we were going through there to clear what had grown back since the last time it had been worked on. Um, we were out pretty remote area, so no cell service. We were camping in the tundra. We packed in all our food and water um, and were constantly fighting a losing battle against swarms of huge mosquitoes. They weren't kidding about the bugs up there. <laughs> We worked in pairs. They call them Sawyer Swamper pairs because only one person is running the chainsaw at a time. The other person is helping to do what they call swamp out the materials. So anything they cut, someone else puts into a pile. Um, and then periodically throughout the day, we'd switch. Um, when we were in Denali, 
we were doing similar work, um, but creating defensible space around some of the commercial and residential buildings in the park, um, which was also really cool. Yeah. So you talked about when you're doing this thinning and you put these materials together in, in piles, I think, right? So, um, well, first question I, I guess I want to ask is like how much sort of the sound, the work sounds sort of painstaking and slow. Is it, how much can you get done in a, like a given day? So can you give us a sense of that? Cause I know there's a big, there's a lot of this work we want to do all across the Western U S. So just trying to get a sense of how much you can get done in a certain amount of time. Yeah. Um, our work schedule was an eight and six, which is eight consecutive 10 hour workdays followed by six days off. So I think that's a pretty sweet schedule. Um, for the eight days we worked in McCarthy, I think we treated about six acres and built 80 something piles. Uh, for reference, those piles are about six cubic feet. So they're big enough to find when someone's coming through to burn them in the winter. Um, but that was our first project as a team, and most of the group was still learning how to use the saws, so there was more of an emphasis on learning and less on the production. But when we got to Denali, everyone was more comfortable, um, but the areas we were working in were a little more dense with slightly larger trees, so we were probably doing about four acres and well over 100 piles per work week. Um, we were there a little over a month. So I think we did about 11 acres in total. I would say on our best days, those of us with prior saw experience were probably cutting upwards of 40 trees a day. And those who are still learning were doing 20 or more, but improving all the time. Well, that's a good sense of, of it. You mentioned you're putting these piles together to burn later. I think that's the first time you said that. And I was in Alaska in June. I saw some of these piles and I thought at the time those must be from some of this fuels treatment work. But one thing that occurred to me is like, it's like they seem like fire hazards themselves. But I, I asked you about this, and I guess they're not too much, or what's the situation there? And to, I mean, say a little bit more about this burn that's going to happen of these piles. That's the prescribed burns that I think in part, right, that we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, any sitting fuels could be considered a fire hazard, but they're constructed in such a way to limit the potential of spread once they're burning. Our prescription or objective when we were thinning was to have anywhere from six to 10 feet of crown spacing between the trees. What that does is if a fire passes through that area, it can't spread from crown to crown at the top of the trees. It has to drop down to the forest floor, which doesn't burn as hot or spread as fast. So it really helps slow it down. Um, when we were building our piles, we also had to be conscious of how close they were to the trees so that when they're being burned, they don't actually burn the surrounding trees. Um, another interesting point of concern is building piles on top of stumps because the fire can actually spread down into the root system and stay there for a long time, sometimes even over the winter. Uh, and we call those zombie fires because they can come back to life and start new fires later. Yes, I've heard about that. Definitely. I think there was a New Mexico fire where that happened. So there were no wildfires in the early part of the summer in Alaska. Uh, but then I think things changed, didn't they? Yes. Fire in Alaska is pretty different than anywhere in the lower 48. And a lot of it has to do with being further north than the different climate and daylight hours that come with that. Um, in one of our classes, we learned that the greatest increase in fire behavior usually happens between 2 and 5 p.m. because it's the hottest part of the day. 
But in Alaska, it's not until 6 p.m. or later due to their daylight hours in the summer. Uh, the peak of fire season in Alaska is usually around the summer solstice when they have 22 hours or more of sunlight. Um, but this year, there was less than 2,000 acres burned in the entire state by that point. Um, and there were no real signs of anything starting up, so our crew had all but given up hope of getting on a fire assignment. Uh, and so had a lot of other people. So most of the fire resources in the state had been assigned either to Canada or different fires in the lower 48. Uh, but at the end of July, it started getting hotter and drier. Um, and there were over 2,000 lightning strikes that happened between July 24 and 25. So then we saw dozens of small fires start popping up. Most of them were less than an acre or were in wilderness areas, so they didn't need resources to put them out. They were just in monitor status, but some that were larger or urban areas got priority. So they moved your crew to do this work, and I think you told me that one of them, you started on a smaller, maybe one of these smaller fires, and so describe first what you were doing there to do firefighting when I think where you were talking about checking to make sure it wasn't still burning or yeah. something like that. When we got our call, we reported to the Alaska Fire Service in Fairbanks, got our briefing, our gear, and met our leadership there. Since all 10 of us were new to fire, we needed leadership with experience. So uh, three guys from a Bureau of Land Management Wyoming crew flew up to help us out. Um, it was great to have people with experience, but to a certain degree, they were learning alongside of us because fighting fire in Alaska is pretty unique due to the topography and remoteness of a lot of areas. Um, a typical fire assignment is 14 days, ideally getting paid for 16 hours each day, but there's not always that much work to do. Um, but for those 16 hours, you're carrying 45 pounds on your back. Um, in your pack, you have rain gear, food and water for 24 hours, your personal protective equipment, tools, emergency medical and rescue supplies, a fire shelter, and lots of other random stuff. Then on top of that, you might be carrying things like a chainsaw, fuel, fire hose, or worst of all is having to carry a, a five-gallon container of water. Those things add up anywhere from 25 to 50 pounds of additional weight to carry. So now we're talking about carrying close to 90 pounds of gear when some people on our crew barely weighed more than that. For the first fire we were on, um, like you said, it was a little smaller. It was about 100 acres. Um, we were the only crew there. Um, we got to take a helicopter out there. It was pretty remote. We camped out there, built a lot of stuff ourselves. We ate MREs, the um, meals ready to eat for three meals a day. And if you've never experienced that, I'm very happy for you. But those <laughs> who have know the struggle. Um, the fire was pretty much out by the time we got there, so we were doing what's called dry mop-up. Um, we lined out in formations to sweep the perimeter of the fire about 20 feet deep to start searching for any spots of residual heat. Um, and if we found something, people with hand tools would start digging it out. Sometimes there were bushes or trees in the way, and then the saw teams would have to come in to cut that area out and make it more accessible. Um, once we finished that perimeter, the next day we would increase it to 50 feet, then 100 feet, and do that until we felt 
uh, confident that nothing in that black or burned area was going to spread into the green unburned area. Um, the second fire was considerably larger. It was about 2,000 acres when we got there. Uh, so it was split into two different divisions, had way more crews, operations, supplies, whatnot. It was also in somewhat of an urban area. So, so like I said, higher priority to protect the neighborhoods nearby. It was road accessible, which means they were able to use these giant bulldozers to create what's called a dozer line, where it's a kind of fire break. They essentially push all of the trees and vegetation out of the way to create just a line of dirt. Um, on our first day there, we were responsible for setting up over two miles of hose lay. So setting out fire hose, uh, hose by hose, they come in 100-foot sections. Um, and that was probably the hardest day for me. Uh, just because it involved a lot of walking back and forth. Um, it was the heaviest stuff to carry. You could put three of those coils of hose on your hand tool, and it was probably over 50 pounds. Um, once that hose was set up, we started cutting saw line, which is clearing out all the brush that would be in the way of those diggers or the hose. Um, we did that for a couple days, cutting a little deeper each time, switching off who was on the saw teams and who was behind them with hand tools or hose. Um, and like you said, a lot of the mop-up was honestly almost crawling on your hands and knees, feeling the ground for any spots that still had residual heat. Because some of it you could see based on the color of the ash or smoke coming up, but a lot of it you didn't know until you touched it. Yeah. Um, I want to return to what I mentioned in the introduction, Emily, about this Wildland Fire Commission and some of the things that were in that report and kind of get your reaction to some stuff. So um, one of the things that gets some attention in the report is workforce issues. So um, they mentioned problems with recruiting and retention of these jobs, um, some difficult work conditions. You've described some of how difficult and challenging it is in Alaska mental and physical health impacts on workers. And they also talk a lot about training and the need for better and more accessible training for people. So they have specific recommendations like um, improving pay and benefits, putting effort into increasing diversity of the workforce. So, I mean, your all-female crew would be part of that, I think. And also shifting more of the workforce to this kind of pre-fire mitigation, restoration kind of work that like fuels treatment that you were doing. Um, so I know you're new to this career, um, so I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but it's because there's a huge set of recommendations there. But I guess, you know, I'd really like to hear your observations about what you think could help more young people like yourself kind of get into this career, maybe young women in particular, and, you know, be inspired to kind of work in wildfire as a career. Do you have any thoughts about that? All those workforce and training issues? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing we actually talked a little bit about this summer, since we had the uh, kind of park service partnership and a lot of mentorship happening there, was talking about the website USA Jobs, which is where all of the major federal agencies do their hiring. And it is quite an intimidating place. Um, and I think that kind of deters some people or makes it more challenging for people who are interested or qualified. 
uh, to get through kind of that application process and get passed on to the stage where you actually get to talk to someone about it. Um, we did talk as well about um, the mental health issues that do come with a position like this and how in a lot of ways it's similar to military deployment um, where you're in a high stress, high intensity situation and every day you're told what to eat, what to wear, what to do. You just do your job and cope the best you can and then one day it suddenly ends and you no longer have that structure, that purpose. And a lot of people kind of fall apart. Um, so that's becoming definitely a larger conversation. Of course, the physical symptoms and lasting side effects are a little more obvious. The mental, not as much, but it's definitely something that people are starting to open the door for, have more conversations about. Um, fire mitigation strategies definitely can be a bigger priority. And I think some of that falls to homeowners and various levels of government. Like in California, they have specific laws about homeowners being required to have a certain amount of defensible space around their homes, which is, of course, safer for them and their properties, but also safer for firefighters that might need to come in and help save that. Um, one of the most dangerous spaces to work in wildland fire is the wildland urban interface, which is where people in wilderness areas meet because of all the hazards involved with building materials, improper fuel storage, maintenance of properties, and stuff like that. Um, and of course, more people being in fire-prone areas can lead to uh, new fires starting from things like campfires or dragging chains on vehicles or even silly things like gender reveal parties. Um, so I think a lot of responsibility for community fire safety comes back to the people that live in the fire-prone communities, along with what measures land management agencies are taking to prevent it. Um, the program I was part of was an incredible way to get a foot in the door. We had really supportive, education-focused environment to learn in and got to meet and form connections with so many amazing people in the National Park Service and Alaska Fire Service. We got a lot of coaching on that USA Jobs hurdle and how to tailor your resume for that. So I think they really set us up for success going forward. So I would strongly encourage any young people interested in wildland fire to look into conservation cores and especially for women to consider all female programs. Wow, that's great. So now that fall is here and wildfire season is sort of over, who knows? We have fires burning all year these days in some places, but your Alaska gig is over. Uh, you've got a little break, and that's how we were so lucky to get you in here, Emily. But um, what's next for you? What are you going to go do next? At the end of this month, I'm going to be moving to Colorado to work with the Forest Service out there and do some burn operations. So we talked a little bit so far um, in this podcast about constructing burn piles. But the other end of that is eventually burning those piles. Um, I'm going to be able to learn how they burn piles and do what they call broadcast prescribed burns in other parts of that forest. And the idea is to go into an area that could be a big risk during wildfire season and to purposefully burn it ahead of time. So if a wildfire were to come through that area, there would basically be no fuels or burnable materials left. You can kind of stop the spread there. Of course, it's very controlled and monitored. They're paying attention to weather forecasts and winds 
there's engines or other water sources on standby and there's a lengthy mop-up process afterwards but i'm excited to be able to use the skills and certifications that i already have and be able to learn more yeah yeah a different part of the whole problem um, I think you told me there's a few other things that you might like to see on the horizon after that. What's Is there some other stuff you want to learn in this space to as part of these jobs? Absolutely. Um, I feel like I only got a tiny glimpse of the world of fire this summer, and I'm excited to learn more wherever I can. Um, I received qualifications as a firefighter type 2 and a faller 3, which is my chainsaw qualification. And both of those can go up at least one level to like a firefighter type one or a faller two or one. Um, I really find that I enjoy chainsaw and want to keep exploring that. So getting a higher qualification in that and being able to be a designated Sawyer on a crew would be a goal of mine. I also have my wilderness first aid certification, but be definitely interested in getting like a first responder or an EMT to kind of feel more prepared to assist. Um, as for other positions in fire, I'd love to learn more about fire engines, which in wildland fire are a little different than the big red ones you'd see. Um, doing structural fire, those tend to be kind of smaller crews um, or something like a helicopter crew I find fascinating. Um, members on those don't fly the helicopters, but they help with uh, cargo, helicopter maintenance, radio communications, things like that. Um, with both of those positions, you have a decent amount of freedom during the season because um, you only have to report to fires that you're needed on. So you have more time to kind of work on new skills and certifications. And then the eventual goal is to make it on to a hotshot or type one crew, um, which are the ones they send into the hottest or more complex parts of the fire. So they have some pretty intense physical requirements to qualify. Um, I'm certainly not ready yet, but it's something I'm working towards. But basically, I want to try a little bit of everything to see what I like and what I'm good at. Yeah, it gives everybody a sense of all the different components in this that, that we need. Okay, well, it's been great having you here. Um, we close our podcast, Emily, with something we call Top of the Stack which is where we ask our guests to recommend some good content, a book, a podcast, anything. So let me ask you, what's on the top of your stack? Uh, currently, I'm reading a book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, which I know is a favorite of a lot of people working in conservation. Um, for those who don't know, Mrs. Kimmerer is Potawatomi and a professor of botany who talks about the Potawatomi beliefs about the environment that she was raised with and the academic perspective that she learned in higher education and how there's a lot of differences between the two, but that we can learn from both of them. And one that's on my reading list is The Big Burn by Timothy Egan, which is about the summer of 1910 and the largest wildfire in United States history. Um, and I think Ken Burns has a documentary on the same subject that I plan to check out as well. I can't believe it. I've read both of those books. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, and liked them both. I really like The Big Burn. So, well, thank you so much, Emily, for coming on Resources Radio. It's been thank really you for having me. great. Yeah, it's been great having you here and all the best in uh, Colorado. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. 
If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.